Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger. The outsider. The one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome to The Extra Environmentalist. I am Seth Moserkatz, along with my co-host, Justin Ritchie, and we are on episode number 17. How are you doing, Justin? Episode 17 is an exciting time to be an extra environmentalist because we've had a lot of interesting guests on our show, and we've been moving along and picking up momentum, picking up steam, enjoying all the voicemails and emails that people have been sending to us. How does it make you feel when someone sends us an email, Seth? You know, when you open up your inbox in the morning and you have that smiling email that of a person saying that you did a wonderful job, it's kind of like getting a cupcake or pat on the shoulder or a large tomato in your lunchbox. It's just, you know, one of those nice things. I feel good. I feel good inside. I, I feel like life has been pretty busy recently. We've slowed down with our output of episodes, but... You know what? We're going to make up with quantity for quality, as we always do, right? As we always do. And you know what? As our workloads increase and as the world around us just gets more and more crazy, we will be there for you. As long as the internet exists, so will the extra environmentalists pumping out these episodes and telling the world where to put it. Yeah, so what's been going on in North Carolina, Seth? Well, I'll tell you what, Justin, the heat out here has been incredible. I have had to investigate the local rock quarry where there uh, is a 60-foot pit that is filled with water and has attracted many bathers who don't feel like paying for uh, private swimming pools. And it's a very large lake in the middle of a state-owned property. Uh, about a mile hike in and you get some pretty nice water to lay around in some logs to float on some um, rope swings to flip off of and some high jumps to risk your life with it's a pretty good time there is no heat in vancouver it's been nice and sunny but also not that hot it's like what 70 degrees fahrenheit max during the day so nice cool ocean breeze yeah it's it's pretty nice I'm a little bit jealous of your cool yeah. ocean breeze and your temperate weather. Yeah, you should be. I've just been eating a lot of chips, sitting and staring at the sun and the mountains. The thing about chips and salsa is I always find that I run out of chips disproportionate to the time that I run out of salsa. And so it's almost like the chips and salsa industry have collaborated. You always finish your chips, but there's more salsa. So you go buy more chips and then you finish your salsa and then you have chips. So you buy more salsa and it just goes back sounds like a really hard quandary that you've you found yeah. there it's just this never ending loop of ah I need more chips I need more salsa so it's probably the point where I just start making my own salsa from a salsa garden maybe you should just eat the salsa with a fork that would also be a solution or make an omelet and put the salsa on the omelet 
that yeah that could also work too I, I had some french toast this morning with uh, some cinnamon raisin bread and it was pretty spectacular from a local bakery who are you speaking with today seth so we're talking with uh, Richard Duthwaite. He's the co-founder of the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability. He's also a fellow of the Post Carbon Institute, and he's also written a bunch of books. The one we're talking about today uh, is Fleeing Vesuvius. Did yeah, you read he, that book, Justin? Yeah, he, he co-edited the collection Fleeing Vesuvius, which had contributions from a lot of really interesting people who are writers in the peak oil and kind of financial uh collapse scene and we spoke with him about the trends that are emerging globally in terms of finance in terms of preparation for tumultuous times and one of the interesting things about fleeing vesuvius is that a lot of books i've read on these topics are very like big picture in the sense that they only really address like the grand themes and Fleeing Vesuvius has a lot of essays that do address the grand themes, but it has a lot of essays that really address specific situations and a lot of interesting things that people can actually do and implement to prepare for these problems. And so I found it extremely useful and I've recommended it to a lot of people, uh, such as my friend Colin who lives on a sailboat here in uh, the harbor in Vancouver, and he's been loving the parts about sailing and uh, has been outfitting his sailboat to prepare for uh, post-industrial future. So he's been doing pretty good. I'm glad that he's. we've reached a man on a sailboat. It's always yes. good to know that there's radios on sailboats. Yeah, exactly. So we talked with Richard about what it's like to live in an emergency and if we are living in an emergency. And even though sometimes there's no one saying, ah, you're living in an emergency, if you put all the headlines together, it can definitely seem like it. It can definitely seem like that. It's too bad that no news media outlet source, except for, you know, the Extra Environmentalist and other wonderful podcasts that talk about the emergency. Those guys should do TV. Those Extra Environmentalist guys? Yeah. That Seth yeah. Moser Katz, he has a face for TV. You want to put me on TV so you can shut me off, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely yeah so um Anyhow, I, yeah. I guess we'll jump into the interview with richard and see you on the other side you are listening to the extra environmentalist today we're talking with richard duthwaite co-editor of fleeing vesuvius today we're speaking with richard duthwaite you're an economist and activist living in ireland co-founder of the foundation for economics of sustainability a fellow of the Post Carbon Institute, and author of several books, including The Growth Illusion, Short Circuit, and The Ecology of Money. But today we're here to talk about a recent collection you've co-edited, Fleeing Vesuvius, Overcoming the Risks of Economic and Environmental Collapse. Is there anything we can add to your bio before we dive in? I don't really regard myself as an economist. Economists have very uh, a, a very bad reputation. <laughs> and I mean, although I studied economics at university, it was very conventional economics. And it took me about 20 years to get out of the mindset that that inculcates. If I am an economist, you'd call me an ecological economist. But I tend to regard myself as a journalist. Uh, I worked as a journalist for a number of years. And the beauty of being a journalist is that you can make mistakes. You can go into an area about which you know very little, and you can write something that will appear in the paper tomorrow. People think that you know something about it, and you need to catch on, in fact, very quickly. 
and this gives you an, an enormous freedom because it means that you can dabble in a lot of areas and try and bring knowledge together, uh, try and come up with composite solutions. The problem with a lot of people in academia is that they don't like making mistakes, it looks bad on their records, and they stick within their silos. I believe in being able to range quite freely over a wide area, looking for solutions over that wide area. So at the moment, for example, I'm spending a lot of time on a, a project that FASTA has called Carbon Cycles and Sinks. We're looking at ways in which the Earth's land can cease to be a source of greenhouse emissions and can become a sink for them. And this is taking me into all sorts of areas like, you know, how is carbon fixed in the soil? What effect does nitrogenous fertilizer have on the rate, the rate of carbon fixation and so on? I'm a generalist. I'm not a specialist. I, I think it's I think it's important that listeners should realize that. That's great. You're an ecological economist journalist, and we are alien anthropologist journalists. And I have a background in journalism, so I can kind of relate to where you're coming from a little bit there. What gave you this background, this passion for finding out the truth about these issues that you that you you cover in your books and in your work and that freedom that that journalism brings you what about that makes you feel passionate and why do you like to share that with others i started getting worried about the present economic system when i was at university i'd worked as a journalist before going to university so i went as a sort of semi-mature student i realized that the economic system that we've got depended on continuous economic growth. I couldn't see uh, how we could have continuous economic growth in a finite world. So that's something that has stayed with me for many years. I mean, for essentially for the, for the last 40 years, this is, this is the area in which I've been, I've been doing a lot of thinking. And I was very influenced by a report that came out in 1972, The Limits to Growth. And this showed that if you assumed that the world had no resource constraints, so consequently there, were, there was no limits on its growth, then essentially pollution levels would build up and it would cause a catastrophic drop in the world's population. Now, this was a famous report because it was the first time that a computer modeling had been used for this sort of prediction. It was the Donella Meadows was one of the team that produced that. Now, this influenced me at the time. It was poo-pooed. University departments came out and said, oh, they've made false conclusions. And they were particularly attacked for not specifying how pollution would build up. But then towards the end of the 80s, when the evidence for climate change began to build up, I thought, ah, this is it. This is how pollution is going to act. And this is you know, an awful shame. It means that the growth model of using more and more fossil fuels to raise incomes is no longer going to be available to most of the people in the world. It's not going to be a, a solution to poverty. I was working again as a journalist at that time, and I kept looking around for a change in economic thinking. 
you know, now that this limit to growth had appeared, you know, I felt sure that somebody should be doing some, something about it, uh, that papers should appear about how the economic system needed to be recast so that it didn't depend on continuous economic growth. Nobody did. And so after a couple of years, I thought, well, you know, what do journalists do? They will write about something this afternoon that they knew nothing about, uh, about this morning. If nobody's going to do it, I better do it. And so I started writing a book. It took me three years. I had to sort of intersperse it with earning or attempting to earn money from my journalism. But that book became The Growth Illusion. The research on that completely changed my thinking. Because up to that time, I'd been thinking that growth was beneficial. But when I looked at the changes that had taken place uh, in Britain, in a period in which national income per head had doubled, I found that all the social indicators uh, had got worse, that growth was not only making the country more and more dependent on fossil fuels, but it wasn't bringing people happiness, it wasn't making them any more healthy, it was widening the gap between rich and poor. Generally, it was making them more exposed. Crime increased during the period because of the attitudes created by growth you know the incomes were of paramount importance so since that book appeared that book the growth illusion uh, came out in 1992 and it's still in print and it's still selling reasonably well i've been looking at what it is that makes the economic system so dependent on growth so dependent that if we don't get growth the economy collapses and of course you know, there's great efforts being made to get the global economy growing again. Quantitative easing is being used to try and lubricate that process. The thing about fleeing Vesuvius is basically it says that we aren't going to get growth anymore, that we need to redesign our system so that it's not dependent on growth, so that it can cope, in fact, with contraction. And it suggests a lot of the things that... We need to change in order to make that possible. One of the key themes behind the collection uh, seems to be that we are living in this emergency, that we aren't going to get growth back, and all of the world's governments are absolutely obsessed with getting economic growth restarted. So are we living in an emergency? And if so, why don't we recognize it as such? And maybe playing off your, your background and understanding of journalism, why is it that so much of the news that people read and digest and use to form their worldview doesn't relay the urgency of the current situation we're facing. I think if you read it the right way, a lot of the news does indicate that there is an emergency. And if you ask any reasonably well-informed person, they will think about the growing problems that the world is facing. They don't think that the present system is sustainable nevertheless they don't see an emergency they say no the world has always had problems we will find solutions to these there was an american economist called julian simon who essentially attacked the idea that uh, infinite growth was impossible in a finite world he wrote a book called the ultimate resource and the ultimate resource was human ingenuity that we can invent our way out of crisis after crisis. And so this is what a lot of people are relying on, 
that, for example, we know that we've got a growing human population, that it's going to be increasingly difficult to feed this population. So we attempt to use, say, genetic manipulation to come up with superior plants that will enable that increased population to be fed. We regard our problems as surmountable, and this is a sort of protection mechanism. It's only when you realize that energy is running out, and it's running out faster than most people have expected, that we're not going to have the energy to come up with these solutions. So this is the game changer. This is the thing that means that we are running out of time, that every year that passes, we're using more and more of the finite fossil energy resource. We've used up all the easy oil at the moment, the best coal, the easiest gas has gone. It's taking more and more energy to produce our requirements with oil. In spite of very much higher prices, production has been on a plateau since 2005. It's not going to be able to increase it. Uh, You get uh, bodies like the International Energy Agency, which was saying a few years ago, oh, if there's enough investment, oil output will be able to increase. Now they're beginning to panic because not only the investment hasn't been forthcoming, but they've looked at the existing oil fields and finding that output from them can be expected to contract at about 6.7% a year. There is a very real crisis, which I would treat as an emergency because we need to respond to these crises in different ways and with with a sense of urgency, the sort of urgency that a country would respond to, let's say, troops massing on its borders, a wartime type emergency. And if we don't respond that sort of level with that sort of input, for example, during the Second World War, roughly 50% of everything that Britain was producing, I think it was about 45% in the US, went into the war effort. In Soviet Russia, it was even higher percent, about 55%. We need to realize that we don't have very much time to come up with solutions. Whereas all the politicians I know daren't think through this sort of thing because they know that all their policies, which are based on a return to business as usual, none of them likes being radical. They're all dodging the issue, even if they're familiar with it. You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and we're speaking with Richard Duthway, co-editor of Fleeing Vesuvius. That's very true. In, in our current political system, it's really hard to make those kind of changes that are needed. And you talked about innovating our way out of 
these struggles as a political option that politicians use as a way of saying we'll get through this, we'll get back to business as usual. What I was wondering is all these systems that we talk about changing and that we talk about reforming are made up of people. These are mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and all that. Are the world's problems caused by bad people or are they broken systems? If it is possible to design a better system, is it possible to garner the political will to implement those kind of systems in our world? Or does that need some kind of human evolutionary change to happen? Oh dear, I hope it doesn't involve that. (laughs) Uh, No, I don't believe that our problems are caused by bad people. They're caused by ordinary people, for the most part good people, who are caught in systems that were designed historically to meet the needs of the time that have just evolved, have a lot of support at the moment because they give people close to them a lot of power and force us to behave in a particular way. I'm thinking particularly of the money system. None of us designed the money system. Few of us have realized that the money that we use has almost all been borrowed by somebody that if we've got money in our bank account and we we don't have any debt we only have that money because somebody somewhere is paying interest on it the fact that somebody is paying interest on that money forces the economy to work on certain lines it forces the person who borrowed the money to do absolutely everything that they, they can to pay down their loan as quickly as possible. That means that they have to do business in a certain way. Now, if you borrowed money to buy a house, that immediately closes down your options. It means that if you've taken out a 25-year mortgage, you need uh, to be planning to to be working pretty well full-time for the next 25 years. So we're, we're caught in that system. But the particular catch about this this system that worries me is that people will only take out loans if they are reasonably confident that they're going to be able to pay that that loan back in the future in other words they're expecting to have more money in the future than they have now in other words the money system is predicated on continuous economic growth we're not going to get people borrowing this year and putting money into the economy unless they're optimistic about about, about their, their futures and having an increased income because they've not only got to pay back the loan, but they've got to pay interest on the loan in the future. Meanwhile, this year's loans are being repaid. So we've got to keep borrowing. We're on a treadmill because previous year's loans are being repaid. If they are repaid and we're not borrowing enough, then the money supply begins to contract. And if the money supply contracts, it means that it becomes increasingly difficult for businesses to trade with each other, to pay their taxes, to pay their employees, and so on. Is this why our leaders tend to be so optimistic in their economic predictions? And they always say, growth is returning, the economy is recovering, and we're seeing green shoots and all of these you know, buzzwords that are coming out from central banks over the last year since 2008 yes that's certainly part of it and of course then you get opposite expressions like we mustn't talk the economy into a depression in other words don't discourage people from borrowing from investing and so on but it's worse than this it's the explanation for 
the very close link between business and government. No government wants to have an economic recession on its watch. It doesn't want growth to stop during that period. So it does absolutely everything that it can, working with the business and commercial sector to keep growth going. Now, that's one of the reasons why in countries like Ireland and the US, the gap between rich and poor has been growing very considerably recently. Over the the last decade in the US, the top 10% of the population have captured most of the benefits of economic growth. You know, it's why entrepreneurs are so worshipped by politicians, why all sorts of incentives are used, why the top tax rates get cut. We've got to keep these people investing, growing the economy, because if investment stops, if people stop borrowing, then the economy will start collapsing. And of course, this is perhaps the paramount reason why the response to the climate crisis has been so poor, because responding to the climate crisis means that we can use less fossil energy, which means in turn that our productivity wouldn't be so great, which again means that incomes would tend to fall. In other words, rather than getting growth, we'd get contraction. And no government can tolerate uh, that with any hope of getting re-elected. No politician can right now in the current political atmosphere, you know, advocate for the kind of ideas that you're talking about to have those kind of changes in the economy that we desperately, desperately need and still be politically tenable in, in the current situation. What do you think and where do you think a politician could emerge that could tackle these issues head on? And what do you think that person, he or she, would, would do? I don't think that politics have the answer. I've grown to despair of getting governmental action, at least for a little while. I think that people have got to take these things into their own hands and they're going to have to invent solutions themselves because they're taking on very powerful vested interests who have the the politicians in their pockets. So I think what this means in terms of money is that we need to start being much more active uh, in developing complementary currency systems, community currencies. There was a period during the 1930s in which a lot of towns and cities in the, the US had complementary currencies because at that time, you know, during the Great Depression, Dollars were extraordinarily scarce, and so people needed to invent their own monies to work, you know, to provide employment. A lot of these worked very well indeed, and, and so there was a, an assessment was ordered by the government. I think the president was Roosevelt at the time. I would need to check that. The academic that he'd got to prepare the report advised that these systems had to be closed because, quote, the money system is being democratized out of the government's hands. We need to fight against that sort of thing. There are community currencies in the US. The one I know best is Ithaca Hours. It's relatively crude. It's essentially a paper-based 
currency. We need to be thinking in electronic terms these days. I mean, since Paul Glover developed Ithaca Hours, mobile phone, cell phone technology, the internet and so on has developed by leaps and bounds. And all sorts of things are now possible that certainly weren't 10 years ago. This is one of the, one of the areas that I'm working on. I'm working with a group within Faster, and we've developed a, a system called the liquidity network in which money is, in fact, given into circulation. So unlike the present system, it's not lent into circulation. It's given essentially as a float to people who are going to the system. And if they use it, the, the system, and they expand the amount of trading that, that they do, they're given more liquidity. And you can track all their transactions on the computer server. On the other hand, if they are doing less trading than they promised, they lose a little bit of the money that they were initially given, just as a spur to enable them to do better. So we're talking with councils. We see that local authorities, probably the best way of getting one of these currencies into circulation. So we're talking with local authorities in both Britain and Ireland about getting the first of, of these systems established. And of course, you need to be working with the business community. They need to be happy to use it too. But then ordinary people do as well. But as things get more desperate, and a lot of the local authorities in the United States are in desperate straits at the moment, I think this is the sort of level, not at national level, not at federal level, but a community level, large-scale community level. This is the level at which solutions are going to be found, and it will need the backing not of national politicians, but of local politicians. How do we get a regional currency off the ground, maybe something like these liquidity networks? Because there's so many barriers against the tax barriers, and then of course the organizational barriers, but a lot of those are being resolved due to digital solutions there. Yes. So how do we get a liquidity network like this off the ground? And then this, the follow-up to that would be, could it exist in conjunction with a national currency? Oh, it would definitely exist in, in parallel with a national currency. The first thing to be said is that transactions in this complementary currency are certainly taxable. It's not a tax shelter, a tax scam of any sort. The way that we are proposing for an Irish city, Kilkenny, involved setting up a trust which would represent all the users of the system. And the trust would ag agree with the two councils, there's a county council and a city council, how much each of the new unit, which we call the quid, it could spend into circulation, let's say, the next year. It's been given an advance of a certain amount. Now, what the council would then have to do is to talk to its employees and their union representatives and say, we're facing grave difficulties. The chances are that there will be layoffs, but we can minimize these layoffs by if you will agree to accept 10% of your wages in this new unit. And of course, the workers will immediately say, well, yes, but where can we spend them? Even before that stage has been reached, the council or the trust organizing the system has got to have been talking to certainly a representative selection of the traders in the area and has reached agreement with them that they are going to accept the new units. The reason they would accept them is that they know that they can use them to pay their local taxes back to the council. So if they can't find anything else to do with them, 
if they can't even get their own employees to take them, if they can't get their local suppliers to take them, they know, you know, if push comes to shove, they can always go back to the council in rate, in service charges, in water charges, and even to tax their motor vehicles. So everybody accepts that the new unit can be used. The initial cycle is from the council to the employees, from the employees to the shops, and then back to the council. But that's not very exciting. That's not going to do very much. And so what you reward people for is spending it beyond that initial cycle. If I'm being paid by the council and I don't just spend it in the shops, but I spend it with, let's say, somebody who comes to paint my house or fix my car, if I'm getting a greater diversity of spending, then I can be rewarded for that. So you're rewarding the people who help develop the system. And as the system develops, as more and more trading is done, you obviously need more units in circulation to lubricate that trade. That's how the system could start. So what you're talking about is a way to increase the velocity of money, essentially, it sounds like, because the real problem, it seems, that are facing so many of the central banks is that this massive credit bubble is contracting and falling away because the energy that supported it is either stagnant or declining in particular areas. And so using these liquidity networks, you would increase the velocity of money? You'd increase the velocity of the quid. That's what it's all about. Each month, perhaps more frequently, the managers of the system would look at the turnover in the system, the number of units in circulation. And if the trading was going up relative to the number of units, that would be a signal that they could put more units into circulation. What you're doing relative to the dollar is that you're allowing the dollar to be used for things for which only that only the dollar is acceptable. So paying your federal income tax, you can only use the dollar for that. You've borrowed for your house or you're paying your rent in dollars. Your landlord isn't going to accept quid for that. So what you're doing is you're making the dollars, the inadequate supply of dollars that people are getting go further. And of course, that's helping the conventional system because if people have got this supplementary income as well, it makes it easier for them to repaid their credit card bill, for example. So I'm confused. You're getting this money from your employer? Where, where would you be getting the, the quid from? You work for a city council. Your employer comes to you and says, will you accept 10% of your r- regular wages in this unit? If you do, you're immediately given a bonus by the trust. But then you will get a further bonus according to how much you spend each month. So if you agree to take more, you will get a bigger bonus. Or if you do some work for somebody else, or if you sell some secondhand furniture and accept payment in the unit, so you're earning it from other people, as your turnover through the system goes up, we look at the velocity of circulation in your account. How quickly do you spend quid once they come in? Does it go out very quickly? In which case, If we gave you a little bit more, you would spend more. So although some units are given into circulation because that's necessary, just as it is in a game of Monopoly, you know, you start a game of Monopoly by giving the players a float to start with. We're starting a new game of Monopoly here. The people joining the game get an amount so that they can start trading, but they're only going to get more if their trading warrants it 
And if they try and save this money, this is spending money. This is, it's not savings money. If the velocity in their account falls, then bits of it get taken away just to give them a nudge. I got you. So that money is for spending on everyday things. Does that money go down in value if you don't spend it over like a year? Like next year will be less, less valuable? What you're referring to is called the Murridge. We don't have that directly, but the fact it is that, you know, supposing you've been given over the last six months, let's say 200 quid, but then you're not trading. You've got a, a lump sitting in your account. You're not doing the level of trading for which you were rewarded. Then we would take, let's say, five quid away from you and you'd see it in your statement there'd be a little bit, you know, sort of low activity fee or so whatever whatever it was called. That would tell you that, you know, the units that you were given, not those that you've earned, but the units that you, that you were given will be gradually withdrawn unless you maintain the sort of level of activity that you agreed to when we gave you that bonus. You are listening to The Extra Environmentalist. Today, we're talking with Richard Duthwaite, co-editor of Fleeing Vesuvius. Something like this, I can definitely see how it would get people to generate economic activity, but it seems like it would make the people who think all money has to be backed by something like, say, gold or uh, some kind of commodity, very nervous. How would you counter that concern? I'd try and persuade them that the uh, thing that really gives money its value is its acceptability i'll only accept money from you it doesn't matter what it is if i know that i can pass it on that somebody else will accept it from me and give value to it and that applies to gold you know people only accept gold because they know that they can pass it on but when you think about it you know gold although well it does have some commercial uses it doesn't have a real intrinsic value there's nothing setting the gold price it moves all around the place so this idea that money needs to be backed by something that's just a sort of smokescreen it's backed by confidence that's the gold smokescreen can create that confidence but confidence can be created in other ways too and that's perhaps the most important part about getting a local authority involved in one of these systems. People will have confidence in the money and accept it if they know that they can use it to pay their local taxes. So one of the interesting ideas that I came across in your essay in Fleeing Vesuvius on money in an energy-scarce world was the idea that uh, potentially, say, uh, an energy company could sell bonds based on the future potential returns of kilowatt hours. I thought that was really fascinating because the connection between energy and money is often hidden 
or invisible to a lot of people. And this is a way to actually explicitly use the energy as currency. So could you maybe talk about that just a little bit? And then we can dive into the connections between energy and money. This is a different sort of money. This is a savings money. So this is not, although it could be, but it's not designed as a spending money. The problem is, I feel that as energy prices rise, it's going to be necessary for each community to think about where it's going to get its energy from in the future. If it relies on external supplies, then that price is going to, is going to rise and it's going to find that it's having to give up more and more of everything that's produced in that community to buy its energy in. In other words, its terms of trade with the outside world for energy are going to change. Charles Hall of New York State University has already shown that the terms of trade that the United States is facing to import its energy from the outside world have been deteriorating. And this can be expected to continue. So each community is either going to have to send more and more goods out in order to get its energy in, or better, it needs to think about how it can create energy itself from its own resources. But with renewable energy, the immediate question is, it takes a lot of capital. You need you know, the upfront price for a wind turbine, or if you're combined heat and power from wood chip or something like that. There's a lump of capital that's needed before you get your supply. Where's that to come from? And this is where energy bonds come in. So supposing you set up a community energy supply company, Anesco, that could finance itself by pre-selling part of its expected output in the future. So it's putting in a wind turbine. It knows in year five, it can safely say that 100,000 kilowatt hours are going to be produced that year. So it can therefore certainly sell off 50,000 kilowatt hours in advance to raise money. It pre-sells. It's using a technique that has been publicized by the Schumacher Society in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. It's the Delhi dollar principle. The story goes, a man in Great, Great Barrington needed to move his delicatessen to the next street and couldn't borrow $5,000 from the bank to do it. So what did he do? He pre-sold his sandwiches. Uh, essentially, he sold sandwiches or whatever he was selling, pies, you know, for delivery in October at a discount now. He got the money in, made the move, and people brought in the chits that he'd given them, entitling them to a meal in the future, and he, he honoured them after the move. So he borrowed from his customers. Energy bonds do exactly the same thing, except you've no need to limit it to your customers. A community ESCO could pre-sell its energy to investors anywhere in the world. It wouldn't matter. If I thought that energy prices were going to go up, it would suit me to buy 10,000 kilowatt hours for delivery in 2016. Now I'm locked into something real in the future. I wouldn't pay the expected price in 2016. I'd make an offer now because I'm looking for a gain on the investment over the period. In 2016, I get my bond matures. I get paid what the price of electricity is at that time. 
where does the money come from? It comes from the people in the community who are actually buying the electricity then. What this enables is for the community to gradually buy out the investors that put up the money. So they are taking over the assets as they buy out those investors. In some ways, isn't that ensuring that you're getting a particular price for your energy, uh, potentially offsetting any risk you could face from more expensive energy costs in the future? Because then you would purchase the energy up front for a particular cost, and then it would you would receive those kilowatt hours. You wouldn't have to pay for them later. Somebody could... Uh, buy a whole series. You know, you could hedge your electricity prices for the next 10 years on this basis. You know, yeah, it becomes like a commodity. It becomes like an oil future or like yeah, a, a crop exactly. future or something yes, the same way. Exactly that. We hope uh, should be able to mobilize capital. If the people in the community want to buy these bonds, then that's fine. But it's not necessary for, for them to do so. What effect is there of introducing a new technology into a stable economy. That, that was one point I, I really liked, and I wanted you to maybe talk about that a little bit more. The reason that you would introduce a new technology is we're, we're in a, a capitalist system, not in a centrally planned economy, is that it's going to be profitable for you to do so. That doesn't necessarily mean that the whole of society is going to benefit from that innovation. It could well be that you've invented a technology that displaces a thousand workers. I mean, this was the the pattern at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And it may be that you can't compensate, that the profits that you make aren't enough to compensate the people who have lost their jobs. So you can't make the assumption that every new technology, which is, you know, which somebody finds it profitable to in- introduce, is in fact beneficial for society as a whole. What it does mean, though, is that profits appear. Capital has appeared. You've made a profit on that sort of investment. How you spend what happens to those profits is equally important. We can't say any new technology, we can't say a priori, whether it's likely to be good or not. I I think we do need an assessment process that vets technologies. But in a competitive world, if one country introduces a technology which enables it to cut prices and others don't, then if you have free trade that enables the country that's introduced potentially damaging technology to take over your markets, displace your workers, and so it might not be a good thing. So I have written in the book that I mentioned, The Growth Illusion, about the problems in dealing with new technologies and whether an assessment process looking at the effects on society, not just the economy, is possible and would be desirable. In getting back to the collection Fleeing Vesuvius, why use the the actual history of Mount Vesuvius to parallel or illustrate the current crisis we're facing? That's easy. The analogy we're drawing there is that there's an awful lot of eruptions. There's a lot of fire around the, the rim of the volcano. These eruptions are problems with the systems that we're using. So we've, we've had monetary eruptions and breakdowns. We're facing something of difficulties with fuel supplies at the moment, the crisis in, in Libya and the possible spread to Saudi is pushing up oil prices. There are worries about 
future food supplies. So many warnings that are coming in. We know uh, that climate change is already giving clear evidence of the damage that it's doing. These are similar to the earthquakes and the minor eruptions that over a period of years warned the people of Pompeii and Herculaneum. Most of them stayed put, even though the earthquakes were damaging their houses, they had the builders in to fix them so that essentially business as usual could continue. And so that's basically the the attitude that we think people have got, that they're ignoring these warning signs. But we fear that there will be a cataclysmic collapse of the global economy. We got very close to that after the Lehman Brothers collapse because the banks around the world didn't know which of them was holding dodgy securities. And so world trade essentially ground to a halt for a few days. I mean, tankers waited to load off Karg Island in Saudi for several days because the Saudis weren't at all happy uh, that the letters of credit that had been issued by international banks guaranteeing that they would be paid for the oil would be honoured. The oil supply to Europe and the US generally and you know, Asia very nearly stopped. And then you begin to get all sorts of knock-on effects. So my personal view is that the eruption that really does damage destroys the way of life that we've got in the way that it did for the people of Pompeii is going to be a catastrophic collapse of the financial system. So this is why we need to move away, why we need to be thinking about what we can do in our community, developing backup systems, backup energy systems and backup money systems and backup food systems so that we are greater resilience and we're much less exposed to whatever crises come. You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and we're speaking with Richard Duthwaite, co-editor of Fleeing Vesuvius. Going off of your last point, somebody who reads this book, who buys into the arguments that you, you put forward in Fleeing Vesuvius, who has read some of the other authors that you, that you have in the essays in your book, how can that person then look at this system that we live in now and then just try to prepare for the system going forward? How can somebody who understands your messages and sees the writing that's so very clearly on the wall, how can that person take that knowledge and then apply it to their life in a way that will help them get through this coming rough time in, in human history and make it through that and have a productive life? One of the articles in the book is about the transition towns 
initiative, which has sort of captured people's imagination right around the world. I mean, these are each transition town group is looking for ways in which that community can make the transition to a very much more sustainable state. So they are looking at money systems, they are looking at local energy systems and local food systems. What I would say very definitely is don't take the survivalist line, don't think of buying a gun and getting 12 months food and living somewhere remote. Uh, That ain't going to to be a solution. The solution is working with your neighbours to build a very much stronger local economy so that what happens internationally if there is an, an international crisis it is possible for people to continue to live and to relate to each other economically and live in a relatively sophisticated way because one of the things that gives this whole thing urgency i mentioned earlier you know that every year that passes we're using some of the limited stock of fossil energy Unless we make this transition now, unless we use the fossil energy to invest in renewable energy supplies, if we wait too long, if if we fail to do that, then we're going to find that if the outside world ceases to function well, if, if the price of external energy soars, then the level that each community is going to be able to achieve in terms of its own self-reliance is going to be very limited. People have got to realize that in real terms, in terms of the number of minutes that you need to work to earn a kilowatt hour or a gallon of gas is never going to be as low again. Now's the time to make those investments in energy supplies and food supplies that will sustain you if things go wrong. We've put all our eggs into the globalization basket. That basket is beginning to fall apart. We need to get some of them back, look after some of them ourselves and hatch them out rather than relying on the global system. So many incredible essays in the book from fantastic contributors. What do you really hope people can take away uh, from reading through these essays? I think the main message is that We need to rethink all our systems, uh, our attitude to life and the systems by which we run our, our companies, our money system, our banks, our distribution systems, food production systems have all developed in circumstances of cheap and abundant energy. We now have to accept that energy isn't going to be as cheap or as abundant ever again that external supplies of energy are almost certain to diminish, that we're not going to have the huge range of products available to us uh, that globalization has brought, because for those to be available at an economic price, they have to be produced in big factories and uh, you know, to get economies of scale and transported all, all over the world. That our lives in future are going to be simpler, much more dependent on what we can do in our own areas. The first step is the idea that, and it's a massive mental shift, that rather are relying on getting slightly better off each year, that incomes go up each year, that the economy grows. We need to be thinking, how can we adjust to 
whatever we do, an economy that shrinks, what do we need to change to make that shrinking work so that it's not totally catastrophic, that people are still fed, are still cared for, that, okay, it's more difficult for them to get around. There isn't the same level of cheap transportation. But nevertheless, you know, people have always traveled. They're going to want to travel in the future. How can we learn to live with less and in some cases considerably less? Where do you see humanity and our modern society being in 50 to maybe 100 years when time kind of compresses down and we see this time that we live in now as the aftermath of World War II where we're still kind of reacting to that. How do you see society being in 50 to 100 years when we kind of look back at this time? <laughs> they will be boggled. I mean, they, they won't believe the level of resources that was available, just how little we managed to achieve with them despite the fact it didn't make us any happier. Let's look back, you know, just under 100 years. Let's look at what happened in the First World War and the huge slaughter that took place in the trenches in France. I mean, we just can't understand that. Our attitude to fighting our armed uh, forces is totally different. You know, the idea that 100,000 men should be killed on a battle in a single day is completely mind-blowing as far as we're, we're concerned. So I think it, I think it was a similar attitude that we used very simple systems, that we were clumsy, unsophisticated, crude in terms of what we were trying to do and the methods by which we achieved it, that we had false values, that we allowed advertising agencies, for example, to create wants, to create dissatisfaction because we needed to get the economy growing. There was nobody, basically, apart from a few Buddhists, suggesting that we could live better, more simply, with less. So there will be complete incomprehension. The scientific areas that we've so prided ourselves on, the very capital-intensive, high-tech areas, like nuclear power, efforts for nuclear fusion, hadron collider, and so on, that won't make any sense when it'll be pointed out that we didn't really know what was happening in the soil. The interrelationship between the plant roots, the fungi, and the bacteria there, that we piled on artificial fertilizers when, if only we would manage the system better, that the plants themselves uh, would have created acids which would have leached the nutrients sort of out of the underlying rocks. So it will be regarded as a very crude and brutal period as far as treating the earth is concerned in the way that we regard the First World War as a crude and brutal period in the way that people were treated. All right, so that wraps up our interview with Richard Duffwaite, co-editor of Fleeing Vesuvius. Uh, any thoughts, Seth? Yeah, Richard. Richard's a very interesting guy. I really found that his insight on finance and money were really, really top-notch there. I think he hit some really interesting points about where the United States is going and where the where United States has been and where it will be. And, and the global economy as well. It's, it's fascinating to watch 
the power that these credit rating agencies have over economies. You know, we're seeing the debt crisis in Europe play out and coming up courting on a Sunday and coming up this Tuesday is the vote in, in the Greek parliament on their austerity package. And if the austerity package passes, the Greek people will suffer tremendous tax increases and uh, hardship. But if Greece doesn't do it, they won't get the next bit of money from the governments of Europe. And in doing so, they will run out of money in a few days. So maybe by the time you're listening to this podcast, either there will be severe austerity measures put down on the Greek people and they will have rioted, or they didn't pass the austerity and Greece has defaulted. And who knows what that will Will bring. So, yeah, who knows what's going to happen when Greece defaults or if Greece defaults? It's going to be some interesting stuff. Do you see uh, the Greece situation as kind of like a precursor to what's going to happen in a lot of other European nations or maybe even non European nations around the world? I think it's interesting to look at how fast it's played out. Greece has been a country that is very different economically than all the other countries in Europe. But it's also been relatively stable economically for a decent period of time. And it's been on the decline, yes, for quite a while. But it's been on a pretty steady decline. It seemed like they hit a tipping point where they got their first bailout a while back. And then it's just been a continued decline ever since. And now we've just seen over the last few months the country go from, you know, more or less stable but kind of declining to like just rioting on the streets and craziness. And it's really shocking to see how fast a stable country can go from stability into chaos just in a very short period of time. And now the Greek government is struggling rapidly to just try to pay the bills on a weekly basis. And they're struggling to try to get money from international bankers. And so they have to impose tighter and tighter austerity measures. And so it's easy to think that your way of life and the way that things are going can project themselves out more or less, even on a steady decline basis. But sometimes tipping points get hit and everything goes crazy within a matter of months. You know, it doesn't happen overnight, but in a few months, your entire national economy can change. And that's really incredible to watch and frankly, quite scary too. Or Justin, it could be just a good time to pick up some Greek bonds and hold some Greek debt right now. Yeah. I bet I you can find that real cheap right now. I, I hear the yields are, are incredible. You can make a lot of money if you pick up a Greek bond. Of course, uh, that's assuming Greece will ever be able to pay you back. It doesn't really take even a, a large austerity measure to make the people of a country go crazy, does it, Justin? I mean, we've seen in, in Canada just recently a rioting public over a hockey game. Isn't that right? The riots here were pretty crazy. I was in Spain and then Greece and came back to Vancouver and suddenly it riots here too. So I don't know what it means for my travels, I guess. Maybe I'll come visit you in North Carolina. Maybe you should just stay in Canada where the riots (laughs) are. Keep your riots to yourself. No, but the riots here were pretty fascinating because it was so ridiculous. I don't know if you saw any of the videos of the riots. um, You know, we were sending links kind of back and forth. Oh, I did. Yeah, there were some pretty intense riots. And I like like the ones where the people were trying to defend their cars and then everyone would just kind of surround them and just beat them up and then destroy their car anyway. Yeah, a lot of... I don't know if I really like those, but... They were interesting. That, that was, yeah, that was awful to see, but you know, it's kind of amusing in a terrible way. But also, uh, a lot of the videos I saw, it just seemed like people who had iPhones wanted to take Facebook profile photos of them with burning cars in the background, and like everyone was running around with their smartphone, like next to cars, going like, "Yeah!" And it was really crazy. 
But uh, I saw quite a few videos of not only the dark side of human nature, but the bright side of human nature. There is a girl sitting on a car, and this Korean journalist, he was uh, shooting a video. He runs up on top of the car, and he's talking to the girl, and he says, Why are you sitting on top of this car? Like, you're putting yourself in danger. People are trying to flip it. And she's like, As long as I sit here, they're not going to flip the car. And I was like, Wow, that's, that's incredible. And even in the aftermath of the riot, uh, people put uh, little post-it notes spontaneously. A bunch of people just started putting post-it notes all over uh, Vancouver police cars saying, like, thank you, you know, we appreciate what you did. Uh, people on Facebook, as the riot was happening, were organizing cleanups to go out the next morning and clean up the city. So even though there's a dark side to the way that social media was used to uh, by the rioters to have an excuse to riot, uh, it was used in a lot of ways to help uh, clean up the city the next day. I mean, if we have more riots like in this kind of vein, with everyone with their cell phones and their and their pics, their cameras and Facebook and Twitter, all these situations of huge unrest are going to have be very well documented, not just by journalists but by average people who can take massive amounts of media with their smartphone and post it up to the internet. So we're going to have these things in live, technicolor video streaming fullness all around the world which is going to be a very interesting time absolutely um so yeah uh, i think it's it's fascinating to see how the riot has played out here in vancouver um but quite frankly things are pretty stable here in the sense of uh food and water and uh, economics even though there is a massive housing bubble in vancouver and it felt kind of ridiculous that people here were rioting while there were so many legitimate reasons to riot in other countries. But you know what, it's going to happen, and I was reading John Michael Greer's The Wealth of Nature recently, and he wrote in there about superstition and the way that uh, young men in society, like say in Aztec society or Mayan society, would compete to build larger and larger monuments, and they told all the young boys, like, hey, you need to get out and build these monuments, because it'll make the gods happy, and they were like, okay, we'll compete, and they went really crazy about it. But on the flip side, yeah, sure, it was silly superstition. But on the other side, it channeled all of that aggressive young male energy directly into doing something. And it was constructive. They actually built stuff. So now with sports, we channel all that energy. But often it ends up being destructive or just kind of it sits there and enters an arena's rafters. Or it just becomes out of control and people go ride on the street. It's all that, all that angst and all that put energy towards something greater than themselves, and that's what it turns into, which is right. a sad, unfortunate thing. Definitely. So maybe we should dive into our first ever listener feedback section? Sure. Let's listen to what people have to say about the extra-environmentalists. All right. So I, I have an email here from Sean, and he's saying that um, he was listening to our interview with Dennis McKenna, and he disagreed with me that British Columbia is uh, less valid than the Amazon in its wilderness. We have a, an email from a dissenting listener. Let's yeah, hear which, it. Is, which is awesome. He said, I recently moved to a rural part of upstate New York from South Florida, and like the jungle, I feel less distracted by excessive EMF uh, on a pure energy level. Um, there's no quantitative difference between places. If anything, the Amazon shares the same time zone as North Carolina. Uh, you might find it less of a jarring difference than British Columbia. And so he says he's trying to put it into words that uh, he disagrees with what he heard me say in saying that moving to British Columbia 
uh, wouldn't be as um, as jarring as the Amazon and trying to get into a different mindset and getting to a different place. And but he he says he loves the show and he says uh, that we should keep on keeping on and hopes we can visit the Amazon someday. I hope I can visit the Amazon someday as well. Yes, yeah, so thanks, we got? Sean. We also have email here from Jeff. He said he listened to us, found us because KMO mentioned us on the Sea Realm, and he says I really like what I've heard so far, especially the episode on temporal blindness. So thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. We also have an email from John, and he says a brilliant interview with the genius brother of a genius, Dennis McKenna. Keep up the good work, and thanks. Thanks, John. So thank you, John. Also had an email from Molly in the UK, and she mentioned her Indiegogo project on the film Just Do It, which is about a group of students in the UK who are fed up with uh, inaction on climate change at a governmental level. So they cover in this film a community of citizens who decide to actually uh, step up and take action and they've scaled the Canadian embassy walls, and they've superglued themselves to bank trading floors, they've attacked coal power stations en masse, and they've had a lot of really interesting uh, displays of their uh, disapproval of the way that the world's governments have handled the climate change issue. And so um, they're working on their Indiegogo project, and we'll throw a link into the show notes. And we also have a voicemail uh, from Kevin uh, from Point Roberts, Washington, and so we'll play that now. Hey, Justin and Seth, this is Kevin calling. I just called to say, hey, great show. This is amazing. You just keep on improving the bar every time. I've got some comments about uh, Alexis Madrigal on Powering the Dream. He put down the ethanol subsidies and uh, refining ethanol from corn. And while I completely agree that refining corn and changing that into ethanol is a negative energy process and completely pointless and stupid, what that subsidy actually does is allow the biorefineries that create ethanol to be created. If you look at where we're going to be headed in this energy descent environment, we will have to expand our use of biomass by a factor of seven in order to even come close to utilizing what's available in our environment. Now, every single one of those biorefineries that produces ethanol is upgradable to cellulosic ethanol. So that subsidy actually goes and improves our possibilities of actually being able to use biomass in the future. So I just wanted to point that out, and especially now that uh, the Senate is actually voting to eliminate the 45 cent a gallon subsidy. It's a really big deal, and we really need to continue promoting biofuels because that is the future. Again, great show, and thanks for everything. Bye. The change in ethanol subsidies, uh, following up on our interview with Alexis Madrigal, how ethanol subsidies help fuel the potential for an alcohol economy, uh, such as the one that Richard Bloom writes about. So Richard Bloom has a book out which describes how individual farms can make money based on... uh, fermenting a lot of their excess reserves and then using that to fuel cars and it's a potential way to have a sustainable farm economy in the future and that and Kevin makes a really good point there because um, as oil becomes more expensive and more scarce having alcohol to run our mechanized farm infrastructure will be incredibly important and so if people want to get in touch with us and have their questions discussed on our mail segment how can they get in touch with us 
People who are interested in contacting the Extra Environmentalist can go to www.extraenvironmentalist.com. They can visit us on our Facebook page, and we can they can visit us on our Twitter feed as well. Um, Justin, how can a person interested in calling the Extra Environmentalist get in touch? They can give us a call at plus one nine one nine seven zero one nine eight seven two, and that's nine one nine seven zero one XTRA. We really do love the voicemails. In fact, of all the methods of communication, voicemail is probably the best for a podcaster. So thanks again for listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and we'll catch you next week.